0: You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue.
1: Hello, Michael. Andre, it's nice to see you again. Although your hair is getting longer and it's driving me crazy.
2: It shouldn't be bothering you. The ladies love it.
1: Yeah, well, you're married, so that shouldn't be a thing.
2: I get Chef Michael Smith these days, and I also get a lot of Eddie Vedder. How about, uh, the saxophonist, uh, what was his name? Kenny G. Kenny G. Nah, his curls are way more out of no, control than mine. No. Oh, you're a Kenny G kind of guy today. Uh, I'm working on it. Yep. Um, so we are on location again. Yes. And I think it's been a while since we've done four people on the podcast, including us. Correct. Um, I guess we'll, we'll get the, the dirty business out of the way. I am tossing $3 into the swear jar, because this is a Chardonnay-centric episode that I did not plan. Correct, that is true. Because the was... whole reason that we added Chardonnay to the list was how I hijacked last the podcast last year yep. and drove my Chardonnay agenda. Correct, so that you didn't actually drive this podcast to be, so
1: uh, we've decided that $3 when you don't drive the agenda, when you do drive the agenda, from what I understand, we may be doing something with Flat Rock, which you are pushing... So, that's a $5 one. You're going to have to put 5 bucks into the kitty. I was
2: feeling it'll be $5 well spent.
1: Alright. So, today, as we are on location uh, at a lovely abode, um, uh, and we are going to be talking to the owner of uh, On7, which is a brand new winery to be... <laughs> I think it's the right way to say it, uh, in Niagara. And their consultant, I'm going to say.
2: Consultant? Winemaker? <laughs> sure. Winemaker? Uh, the, the, the other winemaker that makes all the wine in Niagara that isn't Thomas Bichelder. So this is uh,
1: Peter Gamble, a voice uh, that, that's long been wanted on the podcast, and, and happy to have you,
0: Peter.
2: Yeah, pleasure to be here, long last. I guess before we get to Odd 7... How many places are you making
0: wine? Well, I don't make that many. Michael and I started in a conversation. It, it's a, it's, it ask me how many I've turned down. I mean, that'd be that's a much much larger number. I, I I've been trying to restrict it for quite a few years now. So uh, I tend to do maybe uh, four at a time at the at the very most, oh. and. Uh, Although some, some external ones, you know, Argentina and Nova Scotia don't count in that one, maybe BC, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that'll give you a sense of it, yeah. So, all, all right, right, so yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I think we had the, the, the discussion that Andre Lipinski has definitely started more wineries. Oh, d- definitely, yeah, venue.
0: yeah, yeah. No, so, he's doing a great job. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, uh, so, what brings you to the On7 project, first of all, and then we'll turn it over to Vittorio to find out why the heck he wanted to
0: start a vineyard, so... What brings you to the, the project first Yeah. So so you know, in, in theme with what I just said, I take a close look at everything I'm doing right now. I really am trying to phase back and Anne and I are quite busy. And our own projects in both Argentina and BC and tend, that's, to, that's tend. Anne Sperling. just so that's Anne Sperling, yeah, to, yeah. To People who, uh, who, who are just yeah. Leaders. So it's so uh, our own projects, you know, they tend to be the 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 coddler's kids, you know. Like we don't we don't have enough time to spend on them, and and we need to in both of those cases. COVID related, obviously, an impact that's had some. Uh, had some uh, uh, undesirable effects in terms of needing more of our time in relation to that, and, and the inability to travel to both BC and, and Argentina. So uh, so we, I've been facing back for, for quite a bit. But this project, uh, yeah, close to my heart. I mean, it's it's very small, very top end. Uh, I don't. The f- number one choice for me on taking a project is is. Uh, I think I can say this without embarrassing Vittorio, is is the proprietor. So if I don't think the proprietor's going to go all out, if I don't think the winemaker has full control of the viticulture, the winemaking, everything needs to be done, if I think there's going to be a turning point where, eh, you know, maybe we take this shortcut or that shortcut, then I'm just not really interested right now. I'd rather, you know, uh, work on projects where I can really push it and really try and advance some things. And so... Uh, so this one had a lot of potential. I mean, it's area I know a bit because of previous relationships, uh, Current relationship with Stratus and and some others in this sort of warmer area, with Anne's familiarity with this warmer area as it relates to I think that. Just so South. Know, I, I
2: think we like people know we're in Niagara, but what area are we in?
0: Ah. Okay. So we're 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 not in a we're not in a broad appellation. Don't think of it in those terms, or even in terms of a subappellation. We're in a fairly narrow strip that's about a kilometer off the Lake Ontario and about a kilometer off of uh, off of the river, and so. It's it's slightly warmer than a lot than a lot of other areas, and especially as it relates to Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and and so Stratus is a good example of being in this you know particular uh, neck of the woods. Laley's uh, maybe a little less so because it's closer to the Niagara River, so they get a little bit of that down pull that comes down the river and and tends to cool it a little a little bit more. Uh, but this territory has some fabulous soil, some really good clays, uh, calcareous, uh, nice sand components, uh, good percolation, and uh, I think it has tremendous potential to do something with Chardonnay and, and Pinot, and and it became, uh, I think, something I wanted to do because it was a challenge and it was a little different because the the reaction, of course, is, well, you know, if you, if you want to do Burgundy and Pinot, you should do it on the bench. And I've always felt that it would be nice to try and pick up a little bit of of the richness that the soil can offer um, and to pick up uh, a little bit of the intensity and the concentration that it can offer as it relates to chardonnay and and wanted to work hard on that so i mean that's a long bit of a long answer but but and I, and, and we'll talk more about it when we reach the wines but but that'll give you a sense of it so so the right the right property uh, a proprietor that was willing to do everything we needed to do that still holds true no no decision has been uh, has gone in any way negative from from what I've suggested, uh, related to all viticulture, all planting, all winemaking methods in, in relation to how much we declassify. Uh, it's a winery that declassifies. That's important to me. Uh, a lot of the world's great models always to classify percentages of it, and I think it's important. And so, uh, yeah, so it's top end, and it's it's a fun project to be on. So I'm going to turn it over to
1: Vittorio, just to
0: let people know where we are, because it's at
1: Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, Appalachian, but... Uh, to to drill it down, we're at concession two and line three is basically where we are. That's right, uh, Vittorio. Uh, first of all, how do you get the property? Uh, why do you get the property? And why in the world do you go? Yeah, I think winemaking is in it for us.
3: No, no, that that's a that's an excellent question. It's a question we ask ourselves all the time. Um, so we um, we start well. I'll start off with, with my family. Like my family in Italy used to be in, in winemaking. So I grew up with a lot of stories, uh, especially from my grandfather, how he, uh, you know, uh, made wine for uh, various uh, restaurants and trattoria in, uh, in Rome. And, and I think it, it was a combination of those stories and, and just tasting wines uh, from, uh, from Europe and from, uh, from Niagara. That sort of uh, caught our attention, so we actually came to Niagara quite a bit, and uh, you know, and this was like 20, 20 or so years ago. But we definitely saw the potential, uh, and uh, we saw some uh, familiarity with the traits uh, to uh, top-end Burgundian wines, and uh, and we thought, you know what, uh, we came to a point in in our life where we thought we would put our Chips in the hat and, and give it a kick at the, at the can and uh, and uh, yeah and we had been looking for a few years. Uh, in fact, we had looked throughout Ontario, but we, uh, as as uh, Peter said and uh, and how and you'll see it in the reflection of the wines. The one thing that drew, drew us to Niagara on the Lake was the uh, the uh, the intensity that we were seeing in some of the wines that were being produced in, in Niagara at that point in time. And, uh, what happened was one, one long weekend, I believe it was, uh, a property had come up for sale. Uh, it was an abandoned farm back then, seven acres. That's where our, our name comes from. And, uh, we, uh, were fortunate and successful in purchasing the property. And, uh, from, uh, from day one, we brought Peter, uh, Peter Gamble on board and, uh, here we are.
2: Now was Peter the first phone call that you, that you made? Sorry, Peter, to do this in, in front of you, but...
3: Peter was the most important phone call that we made. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, I'm fortunate that he picked up, and I'm very happy uh, with Peter.
2: No, Now, now you've, you've talked about um, being an Italian family and having winemaking in your roots. There are a lot of Italian families who come down to Niagara and set things up, but are really trying to emulate Italian varieties or working in Italian stuff. What drew you to to Burgundy, or is, is are Burgundian wines just things that, that you preferred as a wine drinker?
3: No, no. We we um, I would say that we were open minded with the project. There, you know, obviously everyone has preferences. Uh, everyone wants to be, produce certain wines that are probably close to their heart. But we came to this project with an open mind, and and that was one thing that Peter and I discussed a lot. Was we we weren't In fact, you know, we ended up, I mean, planting Pinot and Chardonnay, but that that was never the the thing coming in. Like for us, it was, let's see what the land offers. So there was a lot of analysis done on the soil. Uh, There was a lot of tasting in terms of our neighbors, the types of wines that we were able to produce. And it was after that sort of, if I could use scientific analysis, uh, a lot of discussion that we decided to take the uh, chance back then on planting Pinot Chardonnay. So for us, it was, it didn't matter necessarily what the grape was. We wanted though to produce wines that were competitive at an international level and really to produce the best possible wines that we could off the land. Uh, And, uh, you know, after a lot of discussion and and like I said, analysis, we uh, landed on Pinot Chardonnay.
1: All right, so uh, Andre's eyes lit right up, and he's wearing sunglasses, so it's hard to see that (laughs) they lit right up, but uh, Peter opened up the the bottle of 2017, which I believe is your first uh, vintage, and uh, this one's called uh, Pursuit, is it correct? Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right, Pursuit. Um, And we'll find out about the name in just a second, but uh, I must tell you, so Peter poured himself a glass very quietly, and then, uh, you know, I figured, why not? We should all pour, and Andre jumped right up and almost Grab the bottle from Peter. It was, it was very—he's very excited to look at Chardonnay in any way, shape, or form.
2: Um, I'll be—I'll be blunt. We're outside. We're six feet-ish apart, and when Peter poured his glass and swirled it, I could smell caramel notes from here. Well, there you go. That's—that's that's an intensity. And I realize that listening to the podcast, people think that I often have blinders on when it comes to Chardonnay, which you do. But this is—well, um, even you have to admit there's an intensity to this that a lot of. Other Chardonnays, even in the
3: region, don't have. Uh, I give you that.
1: Um, so where
3: does the name Pursuit come from? Anybody? Um, it really, um, so the names, the Pursuit and Devotion, they really are uh, a reflection of what of our efforts uh, to uh, produce the best wine that we can. Uh, so it's that pursuit to uh, achieve the um, best possible Chardonnay and Pinot that we can uh, off the land, Um, the currently the, so we do have two series of wines that we produce on the property right now. Our signature or entry level, if you will, at this point is the pursuit, which is the glass or the wine that has just been poured. And, uh, we'll get to it later on, but our upper tier, uh, is the devotion series. So
1: did you make a devotion in 17 or was it just, uh, just the pursuit at that time?
3: Um, it, 2017 was our inaugural year. It was our first uh, v- uh, commercial vintage, and uh, we uh, produced solely the, um, the, uh, the Pursuit uh, series for, for 2017.
1: So you finally moved into a, a, a
2: declassification, as Peter called it, uh, in the 2018. Well, for, let, me, let me go back. Like, so for 2017, that was the first crop of fruit from the vineyard that's behind us here.
3: That's correct. Yeah. So, so when no, there were, was a bit the year before. But.
2: but, but when you were getting started up, you yeah. didn't think to do the negotiation route, get your hands on some fruit from somewhere else to help get the project going. It's important to you that this is fruit from your estate.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like the model was to um, uh, to have a hundred percent estate fruit, uh, and 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 the reason behind that is that we have spent a lot of time and effort on that vineyard. Like like Peter said, and when we started the project, it was a blank slate. So we had a very unique opportunity in Niagara-on-the-Lake to start from, from, from scratch. Uh, and we really were keen on seeing what the outcome of our decisions were uh, from the, the, the plants. Uh, and we only finished this year. Uh, so it took us seven or eight years, apologies. It took us eight years to plant five acres. Wow. Just, just to give you a sense, because we were very selective on the, uh, the rootstock clone combination. Uh, and, and the nurseries yeah. and the nursery yeah. so exactly that we were getting our vines from because uh, once you set the genetic being in the vineyard that's it, it's set uh, and, 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 and th- that was one of the benefits of having a uh, very small project in terms of um, we just didn't have the pressures that others may have on, on a larger scale. So because of all that, we were very keen on using only 100% uh, estate fruit.
2: Um, I know Michael's going to get to the next question, but sometimes we have a habit of getting a little bit too nerdy on the podcast. There's a lot of people listening who knows what declassification is, but there's a lot of people who won't. If Peter or Michael, yeah, so, you want to explain?
0: So let me, let me go with that. So, so uh, um, a lot of wineries have tiers. And, um, it's very important within the context of doing a really, really top end winery that you have, uh, Places where wines that don't meet the qualifications of the winemaker can be declassified to. So what it really is, is, is uh, it's a winnowing process by which you choose only your top wines to go into your top products. And uh, what, um, I mean, so to take, for example, one of the ones I love is that uh, I worked with a number of years with uh, Jean-René Matignon. He was uh, he's the head winemaker at pichon Baron in Burgundy, one of the great Burgundy houses. And uh, their property has different qualities that the wine can go to every year. So here's a wine, here's, here's, you know, here's a great growth in the middle of, in the middle of, you know, one of the great wine villages in the world that does absolutely everything possible in that vineyard. I mean, the, the, you know, the wines are, what are they, 500 a bottle now on, on release. And so, um, so despite every single possible bit of detail in the average year, 30 to 60 percent of their production will be declassified to one of the lower five levels of wine rather than going into the into the the Vandegaard, the top wine. And so that makes winemaking uh, a lot, I don't want to say makes it a lot easier, but it makes it a lot easier to be great when you can select really dramatically whatever you're doing. So within the process, see we did the same thing when we set up Stratus. I mean we have a, a declassification process on any of the ones that I set up whereby um, there are places to put uh, lesser ones. And some of those, you know, they're lesser because they aren't made to last 20 years or because they don't have the intensity and the concentration and the weight to, uh, you know, to really impress the top aficionados. And, and, and that's very much we, what we what we target to do here. And so, uh, in the process of setting it up, Vittorio was totally comfortable to say, Hey, whatever doesn't meet your qualifications goes into a, to a lower tier. And we liked the idea, like we knew we could make wine at a, at a very high level. So the pursuit is, is, um, intended to be extremely good wine. And in fact, the, in, in 17, we were really tempted to to put it into the devotion level because we loved the wine like and i was sh- shocked at how how good it was coming out given that it's young fruit and uh, mind you, it's a ton and a half an acre. So our production levels are a third of what the what the peninsula averages. And so you're getting more concentration, more intensity and more depth and and, and more nuance. And so uh, um, so we wanted the option to be able to produce something you know killerly wonderful. I mean, you'll you'll notice when we get to the devotion that we're looking at a at a thirty one case production. you know so I mean, it's a really tiny quantity of wine. And uh, that'll get a bit bigger as as the uh, as barrel? the vineyard matures. It's one barrel. Well, a barrel's twenty four most of the time, so it's a little bit more. A little yeah, little yeah. Bit. It's all be blending. It's not always that single barrel. So, um, so anyhow, it, it, that whole process allows winemakers the ability to uh, uh, just just to make wine better. Also allows you to make wine on the edge. Like anybody can make, um, um, you know, Campbell soup. I mean, if you're using. Uh you, you Only cult- if your name is Campbell. You can't just make Campbell soup. If anybody wants to start a company, make Campbell soup you right. can't really make the, it. Uh, but the you know the you can use cultured yeast, you can do uh, standard harvesting methodologies, you can do uh, um, you know, settling techniques. It's really easy to make rock solid safe wine. It's the easiest thing on earth, you know. It's it's uh, um uh, anybody can do it and 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 it's but to make top end wine you're out on the edge on a lot of things you're using uh, you're using wild yeast that that uh, will be wild, they call them wild for a reason, and then you know what happens in those first few days can be really dramatic and really interesting in order to have those interesting and more complex flavors you're often playing at the edge of you're doing the same thing at harvest, you know sometimes you know even though um, even though you're being you're very careful and we're selecting by berry and we're running across sorting tables, we want to create flavors that give up you know a full orchestra, not just a couple of notes, and and so there's a lot of variation in those too. And so uh, so it's really important to be able to do that selection process. And and not all wineries can do it. I mean, it's not a, it's not a particularly uh, a commercial thing to do to be able to uh, um, select and declassify as much as uh, the top end wineries do.
1: So uh, just to uh, an aside here, as jail used to say, if it goes right, uh, it's an indigenous yeast. If it goes wrong, it's wild. Yeah,
0: yeah, right. Right. yeah, 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 uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
1: Indigenous. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah yeah. So. yeah, yeah, Well, that's a Frenchman's interpretation of a couple uh, a couple of English words. Jail our good friends, and. and uh, I uh, Yeah, no, it's interesting to see just what he does. And, and uh, he's equally emphatic about using indigenous uh, yeasts. Yeah. As opposed to wild. So yeah.
1: what we're going to do now is we're going to pour the 18, and then we're going to, I guess, because they're both uh, a pursuit and from two obviously very different years, uh, we're going to compare these wines and find out, Peter, what you had to do in these years to make them become the wines that they are. Yeah. And uh, Vittorio... Uh, just enjoy a glass for a bit and, and
0: pipe in whenever you feel like it. So, so, uh, uh, so what do you think of the wine? What do you think? What do you think of the 17? Let's, uh, let's, like I said, it's, it's
2: got the, it's got a nice in, intensity. It's pushing up into, into baked fruit. I'm still surprised at the full ripeness that we got in the 17, considering that we basically, there was basically a month for the fruit to ripen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but like it's, it's, it's got apricot notes, which. I don't yeah. often find in Chardonnays from Ontario, yeah. yeah, but a lot of like, like butterscotch, but we're not talking like cheap Werther's originals. We're talking like French patissier, really, really yeah. good, well-made
0: butterscotch. This is a really, we find this wine's a real dichotomy. So we'll, we'll, we 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 expected, and I advised Vittorio to expect really mixed reviews on this. I, in fact, said initially, I think Victoria will acknowledge this. So this is going to be a love-hate wine. You're going to get some great scores and you're going to get some people who absolutely hate this. And and I, I like this wine for me, and, and you know, I, I, I try to say this in an impartisan way. This This wine for me has an aromatic that I've been trying to get for a long time in Ontario that's a really burgundian aromatic for me reminds me only of chassagne and pouligny and occasionally merceau that that's a hazelnut uh meal mealy kind of characteristic and trait that i've just found really really hard to attain And that's why i was blown away when in the first year this vineyard created that particular aromatic you know and it's it's so we had we had uh recently a tasting with uh with a master sommelier in in uh in Quebec, who brought over a bunch of friends in and, and did a blind tasting and unanimously concluded that this was Merceau. And that is isn't where I'd have gone, but I mean, stylistically, and nor do I really want to make a Niagara that tastes precisely like that, but the paradigm on Burgundy are some flavors with which a lot of the modern drinkers in the world aren't necessarily familiar, right? So it's a, so it's a little out there on the edge. And if you get someone, for example, that's more accustomed to drinking new world Chardonnay. There's going to be some flavors in here where they're going to go, Hey, wait, you know, I mean, come on. Like there's not a lot of fruit. There's a ton of stone and there's some smokiness and there's a, there's a bunch of weight and there's some earthy kind of stuff. But, but, you know, where where it doesn't doesn't remind me of Chardonnay, right? And it's, it's almost, it brings me back to some of the Burgundian comments about, you know, we don't grow Chardonnay. You know, we, we make, you know, we make village wines, we reflect the terroir, and it's merely a vehicle, right? And I think what we're trying to do here is to take a terroir and a characteristic, and we're working with the largest root ball I know in, in SO4, which is the big, you know, sort of huge shift in in what we've done here compared to anyone else, to the point that when... The nursery phone Vittorio, but it said, hey, Vittorio made a mistake. Like, you've got, you've ordered your Chardonnay and your Pinot on SO4. Like, nobody does that, right? And and Victoria, it says, you know, just a minute, and then, and then phones me and says, hey, you know, what's going on here? And so so um, so some principles have come into play in terms of what we're doing that I think are aimed toward really bringing up some flavors and some things that are different on it. And, and so... Uh, so the flavors uh, come, yeah. from
2: the, come from the vineyard and not from... Because it's a thing with Chardonnay. Yeah. It's, is a, lo- a lot of it does come from a barrel when you say something a little bit less stone fruity or tropical fruity yeah. you say that and i'm glad that you said hazel i've never thought about that before yeah. but i'm getting the smell and it, it, it almost, that, and almost hazelnut and hazelnut shell right you that brown sort of shell kind of nailed you know? that right there where i would have normally yeah. just described it as baking spice right yeah. like it's it's roasted it's nutty there yeah um but you're telling me
0: that that doesn't come from the barrel, that comes from the vineyard? No, no. So, so the oak, can I get really geeky on that? And really talk, talk right. barrels. So, So the barrels we've netted out at, we're working with dami, which of course is huge in Merceau and in central Cote de Bonne. And it's a flavor component that does add some things, but it's also delicate within the context of things. And it tends to add more structure than it adds flavor. We're working with only Allier and only Vosges, and we're working with only long-slow. So in terms of can you get more delicate, can you get more structural and less emphatic on the nose, not really. And and so uh, the Coopers we're choosing, and that's 20% new and 80% used, and the used tend to be highly neutral. So, so we're working at really, really low levels of oak. I want that... Full uh, 22 months of oxidative component that you get from the barrel age, but I really don't want it to taste like uh, like wood, and I don't want it to taste like vanilla. I want it to be contributive and to be well underneath the levels of the terroir, or else we're not really achieving what we're trying to do. So that that's sort of the the thing here, and choosing SO4 was a big part of that because I wanted to be able to control the cropping level and still achieve acidity. So I've been really nervous as has every Burgundian and chimp and wine, oh, <laughs> about the, uh, the impacts of climate and what it's doing to our acidities in terms of wines that you want to have great longevity and great concentration. and something that will be able to give you the bite and the intensity that you want in a wine of, of great structure. So you can still be concentrated, but it's still fresh and bright and long and, and ageable, heavily ageable. And so uh, um, by using uh SO four is a rootstock. It can tend to produce more fruit, but that gives us then the option of going back down to one bunch of shoot at any time of the year we want. So we can take that and focus it, bring it back, get our concentration without losing our acidity by adjusting to a warmer year and a cool year with some really detailed viticulture. So so there's a lot going on in terms of the of the vineyard management in order to get us where we want to be.
2: I I I love how nerdy this podcast is right now. I don't. What do you think about the? <laughs> <laughs> Just because well, my... Chardon-
1: Chardonnay is not my grape, right? So uh, while <laughs> Andre's my, and is... my
3: career
2: path is going in a different direction <laughs> well, than yours, while well, well, you're absolutely licking the glass, I'm like, uh, I, I... Uh, you know what? The, the, I'll be honest. The 2018 is is good, but it's not as intense as the as the 17.
1: I will give you that, but I like the 18 much, 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 much better. Michael, than the 17. you ignorant slut. <laughs> no, I do not like, and I'm going to go right out and say it, I do not like that funkiness that comes out of the glass. It is absolutely... When uh, uh, Victoriano, so I tried you this... You like,
2: you like the 17 better? No, I like
1: the 18 better.
2: Yeah, you're insane. Oh,
1: the 17 does not taste like Chardonnay <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. The 17 It tastes, tastes like exactly. I'm licking the like, inside of a barrel. It tastes like I am, I am eating nuts. There is absolutely no... no Idiom one idiom of fruit on here, just as Peter said. He when? said there's not going to be fruit, <laughs> and he's 100% right. He's if I'm right. looking for a little <laughs> bit of fruit, either. it's not here. There's no fruit. Whereas the 18, which is, I think, a more delicate year, and I think more uh, more suits uh, maybe the style, maybe the, the SO4 rootstock, that 17 has, has got a lot of heat in here. Whereas the eighteen, it was a more delicate year. And while a lot of eighteen Chardonnays have very little flavor, this eighteen actually does have some flavor. And it does show some fruit. It also shows a little bit of what the seventeen has. It's got some of that hazelnut. But it's got a nice mix of fruit, minerality, uh, and barrel. Whereas the seventeen, for me,
2: no. Okay, can I not can my I talk wine? Now? I, I would not now? I, I would I talk not talk drink now? that with your mouth. Can I talk now? And I've tried a few times. Go ahead. Um, when's the last time you drank Merceau Pouligny, or Montrachet? Uh I had a merceau at Christmas. Okay. Because this is a dead ringer for a merceau that I opened two weeks ago. Um, and to say that there's no fruit in this, yeah, the nose is a little bit more subdued in terms of fruit. It's a lot of mineral and a lot of the caramel and a lot of that hazelnut. But on the palate... If I wanted to eat a turtle, I'd eat a turtle.
0: <laughs> I used to have Mine discussions with... Uh, Bruce Cass was a, uh, a wine judge I spent, we judged together at a lot of international competitions. Bruce wrote the, uh, the uh, Oxford book of California wine. And uh, Bruce and I had judged together. Bruce loved fruit and wine, very much like Michael obviously loves fruit and wine. And so we get into the discussion at some point, and I'd start to complain once in a while, particularly when we were on a Chardonnay panel. I'd complain once in a while about, ah, man, all I get in here is just like this bombastic fruit. You know, like this, these are the simplest wines, you know, I've tasted in ages. Bruce would respond with, and and most famously did on one occasion, said, Peter, he says, excess fruit is not a negative thing. There's no such thing as too fruity. That's like too good looking. Like it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's wrong. Like you, you can't go that direction. I said, Bruce. You should eat grapes. You save a ton of money. Like, why do you want to spend $50, $100, $200 a bottle? You can buy grapes. I think, and, I and, think and, there and is such a thing as too much fruit. I don't say that. There is too much, where you get too
2: much fruit and you go, that's too much fruit. Hey, yeah. hey, 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 you got like a two minute rant of being wrong. Can I at least finish my tasting note? Because you're going to be wrong now? No, I'm getting a little bit of, pap- uh, sorry, a little bit of apricot and pineapple there on the mid palate that's going what, right back. I don't know what you're drinking. And the mineral note I have is... no idea what up. you're drinking. I don't know, Michael, I drink a lot more Chardonnay than you do. Correct, so, uh, you drink a lot of Chardonnay and you are a Chardonnay
1: lover. So you will find anything you want in that wine because you masturbate
2: to Chardonnay. I only drink what's good. That's why I drink so much a of it.
0: And dishard, my I am Not kidding. All this right. goes to my point of it's a very dichotomous wine. Where you get <laughs> love-hate relationships. Whereas uh, Vittorio, I <laughs> do <laughs> like the
1: 18 because I am picking up like some lemon zest and some lemon, uh, some lemon actual peel. Uh, I am picking up a nice minerality here. There is a little bit of that funkiness, but it's all hiding in the background behind all of that kind of neat... Uh, minerality and, and and delicate citrusy fruits uh, a little bit of green apple in there and that apricot does show up but there does seem to be a little a little more a little not a lot a little more fruit forward than the 17.
2: Yeah, but at the same time I think it's it's missing it's missing an ounce of the complexity that you're getting from the 17. The 18 is still a very good wine and I think your fruit your fruit tasting notes on that are spot on even though I really don't want to agree with you right now, because you're kind of being not nice.
1: <laughs> but you are right about
0: that. The one thing I'll say is that um, the 18 is becoming increasingly more like the 17 all the time, which would be negative news for for Michael. It would be negative. But I, but I would expect that in a year we'll begin to see many of those traits. And again, they're opening up. Like, both of these wines are probably being consumed, you know, 10 years before they really should be. If you feel the finish on the wine right now, on the 18... Ten seconds after you swallow, even more so in the devotion. Twenty seconds after, you feel the acid that remains and a bit of the skin component of the of the grapes, which is what gives a lot of the longevity to great chardonnay. And and uh, I just think you know the the uh, you'll see them get closer together. And you'll see, I, I think and you'll the see 18 has a really work. wonderful acidity too. Yeah. And that's where I, I mean,
1: 17 does, does, to me does not veer into the ac- acidity. It's all just lies on my palate like a like a turtle, but minus the chocolate. <laughs> You get you get the nuts, you get the caramel, yeah, and it just kind of sits there, and but the acidity it, doesn't it, doesn't come along and sweep it all away so that I can have an, another turtle. It no, what just you get what you there.
2: get is a lifted mineral note on the finish, no. which is what I want from a wonderfully complex chardonnay. Okay, off of off of the you being wrong now. Um, no a question I have about about twenty eighteen is I've noticed that with most of the twenty eighteen chardonnay that I've tasted, as opposed to the seventeen, whether it's Flat Rock or uh, Sixty Mile or Westcott, just I'm not singling anyone else. It was showing the oak a little bit more, apparently at first, and takes a little bit of time for it to come together. The 18s are now finally come together from what I've been tasting. Um, how do you make that decision as a winemaker to know when to pull it out from barrel when
0: you know you get to the point that they do just taste like the barrels that you've been using? Yeah, but that, you know, I'll use the I use the the archetypical Canadian response to that. It's very much the. The Wayne Gretzky thing, where you you know your winemakers are always looking at where the puck's going to be, not where it is. Like, because we're tasting wine most of the time, it, those of us especially making top-end wines are tasting wines much, 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 much younger than than you want them to be consumed, and so you're looking for them to taste a specific way only because you're you're hoping or you're confident be, that because it tastes this way now, that it's going to taste somewhere you know at a different spot uh, off off in the future. So I think that's. Uh, uh, really the most careful thing. So when you're doing oak, we're doing it at a very low level again with, with the most elegant of the coopers, with the, the most elegant of the toasts and of the, of, the, of the woods. And even at that, you have to be really careful within the context. Sometimes to play with an extra 3% of new oak will tip something over the edge. You know, it's just, it'll, it'll be there. starts to become resinous in a way that's wood related. You know, all the jokes about tasting two by four. Um, it can get really strong, you know, really, really easily. So you're just paying a lot of attention, you know? even more so in wines that aren't, that are more terroir driven than fruit driven, right? You know, like the, the more, a lot of the winemakers here that you'll see, and there are a number of the Chardonnay known names that you'd know best are winemakers that are specifically picking pretty carefully not to achieve the bricks levels that will give you telltale Chardonnay fruit. You're especially doing that if you're making sparkling, but you're doing that if you're making classic Burgundy too, because there's a point at which um, peach, apricot, all those really strong fruit notes start to represent the flavors that are more similar to, for example, the Macon than they would be to the Côte beau bon. And so, if your classic, if your paradigms are classical, then you're you're looking to create a wine of a slightly different style. Yeah. Well, now I'm
1: interested in trying the Devotion. I want to see where 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 we go from uh, from the 18 as a uh, as the as the declassified wine, the Pursuit, uh, into this devotion, which is is the top tier 31, uh, 31 case. And how many different barrels go into this this top tier? Uh,
0: there, are about, uh, there are about a dozen barrels. Yeah. A dozen barrels. A dozen barrels. Them. No, not to go into the top tier. Okay. But that uh, I, cho- but that I, I choose from, in, from. In, in creating the top and tier. I, and,
1: I, and, and when you're doing this, are you just taking components of certain barrels... Because at 31 barrels, it's not like you took... You can't have taken two barrels. So are you just picking certain elements and seeing what goes together with what and and, and not making a, yeah. uh, per, se, per se, a, um, you know, best barrel wine, but a best blend wine?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so so you're always working with a pipette, you know, especially in small volumes like that. So you're literally taking off, you know, a few mils of this and a few mils of that and doing all the nicks and the tasting. Yeah. And you're usually doing that over a period of time because... It's hard to do it once and reach for anything remotely like the truth, <laughs> you know, like, you know, if, if they're set to, you know, a, a platonic ideal. But the, uh, uh, so you do it a number of times, and, and you taste through and make sure that your, your conclusions are steady, and you normally do it blindly, you know, so you can, blindly. It's probably, probably not the right time to use an adverb on that particular word. <laughs>
2: I mean there's got to be a certain amount of of intuition that goes into making wines like this i mean you know it's it's there are a lot of people there's a lot of businesses on the peninsula that are making wine essentially to a recipe when you're talking about icbs but i mean i understand that we're running business and you need to make sure you're hitting that intersection of artistry and business that you're creating a product that's interesting for the consumers and unique as well especially when you're talking about ultra premium Ultra premium wines, so I don't think there's anything wrong with saying blind, blind faith, yeah. blind trust,
0: yeah. and having faith yeah. in your ability. Yeah. The, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think winemakers in general take a lot of different approaches to it. Some are extremely analytical, and we'll go back and and begin to find, for example, or uh, or do operations on individual components of a wine, and then do reblending again to come back and see where you are. I know um, certain winemakers international that'll take nine to 12 months to do a blend and, and, and it might involve, um, 40 different separate tastings. Uh, others do it, um, much more quickly. A, a very famous and really, really good older generation, uh, winemaker in, in Niagara that I won't mention who subsequently retired did about 95% of it off the nose and he was a fabulous blender, but I mean, he, he had a really, really great sense just from the aromatics on where a wine was going to go and, and and I was pretty dubious but I tasted with him a lot of times and blended with him quite a few times and, and uh, I was really impressed by what he could accomplish with the nose but many again are, are way more detailed and, and, uh, uh, and spend a lot of time on it. I think within the, I, what I want to go back to because I'm nervous about the way and and I should really be letting Vittorio talk more, on that. and I know he will on this one. But I want to make Vittorio. Sure. This is how it feels like when you're a co-host with Michael. Just so you know, by the way. No, all good. That's we, why
3: Peter's here. Yeah. He's the expert. But
0: but I want to make sure. So declassify. We've got to be careful on that because in uh, uh, in 19, for example, we've decided not to make a devotion. Right. So everything's going into pursuit. There'll be other years when we do that as well. But it was essentially Vittorio's decision because uh, I'd isolated some wine that I felt could go there, but neither of us felt that the pursuit was quite as good if we took off that couple barrels of devotion. And so uh, it was Vittorio's comment to say, and it's his place to do so, was to say, hey, the pursuit has to be at this level. We can, de- we can declassify whatever we want below that because we're just selling it and nobody knows it's ours. It just goes out, it's bulk wine to other wineries. And so, but what goes into pursuit is, is, is uh, you know, there's a whole level of declassification happening underneath that, as you can tell by the volumes we produce uh, in addition to that. So, so none was produced, even though we could have made a, a really nice uh, devotion in 19 as well. So it, pursuit is your calling card. That's
1: that's the calling card and then devotion is when when things go really well then devotion gets made and when things don't go so well everything goes into pursuit and yeah
3: yeah
2: yeah so what 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 was the what was the bar what is the bar for you though because I know 19 was another challenging vintage like 17 definitely more challenging because we didn't get the the warm fall but from what I've been tasting from the, the Pinot and Chardonnay early coming out from some wineries, but the, what I've been tasting early, it's, it's going to be a pretty banging year for Chardonnay and Pinot if the quality continues up. So, like, where's your bar? Yeah. Well, <laughs> the,
0: well, the, I'm getting been, yeah. All think all yeah. really
2: quickly. Yeah. I think
1: 19 is an acid year. Like it's it's like 09 was. Yeah. So you yeah, know, Chardonnays are going to show really well because yeah. they need the acidity, make them show and make them shine. And 19 was one of those years that, uh, that, from what i tasted in roses and Sauvignon
0: Blancs, the acidity has been great. So, yeah. Uh, no, that's, so that's a factor. I mean, there's no question that 19's a really good year in that regard. And I think it's 19's like an incomparably better year for Pinot and Chardonnay and to a lesser extent Riesling than it is for cap prone, cap silver anything that require a long, late, and intense season, right? So uh, no question about that at all. So we like 19s a lot. 19 is stylistically where we don't mind being. Obviously, when we're in a slightly warmer area and we're going Pinot and Chardonnay, cooler years, sure, bring them on. Uh, um, we'll be delighted with that. And and uh, because of the way we're doing the viticulture, I think we're comfortable in both directions and increasingly so now. We've, we've had four years. And we've had two relatively cool ones, and two relatively hot ones, and two arguably drought-impacted ones. And uh, we're really happy with what we've been able to do with uh, with the rootstock combination, clone, and with our methodologies. So uh, uh, it would be good to get you in the vineyard. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty serious, and it, it's uh, uh, it's a good indicator of, of where things start. Where's the Pinot? You know? In the mm, middle.
3: It's right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, 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 So the way the so it, we've only have five. Acres planted, and it's roughly 50 50 is what we have. Um, Chardonnay, so the first uh, I think meant acre and. Where's the wine? Oh, I thought you meant we're I in the vineyard. It's actually. We've got three
2: beautiful bottles, and I know I'm, I'm basically Captain Chardonnay, but um, I, I think it's the quality of the Pinot Noir is. Um, I think people have really figured out what's going on in, in Niagara. <laughs> like, there's no such thing as a bad vintage anymore when working with, with Pinot.
0: Where's oh, the wine? Oh, well, I disagree with that, but that's another story. It's so yeah, yeah, so it was planted later, it number was planted one. Later. Yeah. There's never so, a bad vintage so with
1: Pinot in Niagara? It'll
0: be uh, at least another year away.
1: Another year, <laughs> another away. year. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so how long are you keeping that in barrel for?
0: Uh, well, that's a question mark. We normally do a twenty 22-month month routine, so we're bottling before the commencement of the second subsequent vintage. Uh, you know classic Burgundian in that regard and classic within the Burgundian profiles too has a real impact like anybody who's never studied you know the impact of uh, you know from a winemaking point of view of what a wine tastes like at the end of month 10 you know and as you approach the next harvest and what it tastes like you know 12 months later uh, it's a huge impact on the wine The wine concentrates because some of it evaporates when it's in barrel the wine picks on picks up totally different notes the fruit levels drop dramatically so if you like increased fruit you know Michael, just go straight from, just go straight from stainless steel, straight from stainless steel to the bottle. <laughs> like of, in ja- I like in January, balance, you know. Right, whip a few saves in. We'll get you. We'll get I, you there. I, I I like
1: a nice balance of <laughs> fruit and oak and the rest of the stuff, and uh, I, I I want I want to taste at least some kind of fruit that's that's in there. And sadly, in the 17, I just don't get any any fruit. <laughs> Whereas in the 18, on both of these 18s, there's a nice layer of fruit that's kicking around in there. It does show some of the qualities of the 17, but the 18s seem to have just a little layer of fruit that's just just hovering on the top. And then when you delve a little deeper, it's taking the deep dig- dive into the deep end, you get the other kind of interesting little funky minerality things that are going on in there. And, um, uh, whereas the 17 has gone all funky. The and that's um, not, and that's not my, that's not my kind yeah. of Chardonnay. I know my kind of Chardonnay. Yeah. I, would, I would happily fun. drink. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to find a smart comment to talk about I, would, ha- ha- the I yeah. would happily drink these 18s, yeah. uh, and probably the Pursuit, uh, just because it seems to be a little more lifted on, on the fruit, uh, the devotion is lovely. But I, I like the, the liftedness of the 17. I mean, sorry, of the of the pursuit and the, uh, for lack of a better term, depressed uh, note of what I'm going to call funk, and that is, it is there. But uh, whereas the devotion's got a little bit more of that funk. Uh, whereas the um, the pursuit is is has got a little bit more lifted a lifted fruit, but in a, in a kind of a semi muted kind of a way, it's hard it's hard to describe these wines um, based on, on on what they are. And, and as,
2: as Peter said, they're they're quite young, so it would be interesting to see the seventeen in ten years. I mean, that was the that's where my head is going because the thing is, I'm tasting the eighteen pursuit and devotion. They are very similar in in flavor profile Correct. but it's like watching a disney movie in you know on vhs and then watching the remaster on disney plus there is more intensity in the devotion um, it's got a little bit of that hazelnut that you were talking Correct. about that is missing from the from the pursuit, it's, the, it's there, it's sitting just in the background, it's just kind of hanging out in the back. But I'd be curious to see how these wines evolve to see where the fork in the road is going to be for yeah. pursuit and
0: devotion and how long. Well, how long should people age Chardonnay? Uh, Chardonnay is a much harder question, you know. I mean, some of the I've I, um, yeah, okay, well, I mean, well, I've had don't 60 we, why year old why burgundy why wines? Why don't we
2: start with these wines? Yeah, okay, what is, what is aspirational? For both of you, the vision of making sure that these are in someone's mm-hmm. cellar and what's the sweet spot? I'm grabbing a bottle to be like,
3: man, I met this guy, Vittorio. You got to taste what he made X number of years ago. Yeah, that, that that's, you know, you're not the first to ask that question. And I, I always stutter answering that question. Um, I, I had met must this 10 years ago or so, um, a, uh, producer. A winemaker from burgundy one of the top tier uh, negociants and i had asked him i said what what's the su- sweet spot for you for uh, your your grand cru chardonnay and for him it was that he would never touch it before seven years like, like to touch it before seven years was blasphemous and then he'd go from there um you, you know um for us i would you know, it it for us it would be uh, an incredible achievement uh, to uh, emulate uh, some some of those standards. Uh, we've heard uh, a few, so we we've done a few tastings already uh, on the 18s, uh, and in particular on the devotion. and And uh, a number of people have already um, tried to put an, uh, a date on that in terms of the longevity and and some. Uh, a few people have already, uh, they feel that 10 years is uh, at the very least, uh, 10 to, to 20 years is, is what we're hearing, uh, that some of these wines can age for, uh, but I, you know, it's, it's, year four or something like that uh three four or five almost uh uh and i i i think they're evolving especially the 17 I know, I know michael may not be keen but but for us that that style that we're after like it's it's like bang on like it, it is evolving to what we're after uh and it's getting those sort of um uh hazelnut uh, attributes that are are pretty difficult to uh, to obtain here in, in niagara uh, and uh, we're we're there, uh, and uh, it, I, I'm as keen as you uh, to figure out uh, that sweet spot going forward. But uh, it, it does have nice acidity, uh, and um, yeah, I, we just I, there's no reason to not expect it to last at at least uh, you know to to, to those estimates uh, that are out there on on the 18s.
2: You know what, I, I think if there's anyone from Wines of Burgundy listening to this, um, Michael needs an education, so if they want to send us some Merceau, um, <laughs> pulling or chassagne, <laughs> no no, you don't need to roll your eyes, we might get some wines out of this. Um, we just want to see wh- what just the no direct- You want more Chardonnay, for God's sakes, I've told
1: you this is not Chardonnay year, and yet, here you go, jerking yourself off for more Chardonnay,
2: you've got to stop this, Whatever. you really have well, to stop. I've, I've, I put my money in the jar for this episode anyways. Um, If I can ask maybe like a a, a bigger picture question, Peter, I know earlier you talked about the difference between New World and Old World Chardonnay, and with the wines that we have on the table in front of us, we're not talking about your entry-level $20, you know, Folino. if we're talking about Argentina, which is, I mean, Paul Hobbs definitely makes his Chardonnay in a New World style. Mm -hmm. But what I'm noticing is when you get to that top shelf, whether it's from California or from South America or from South Africa, you're talking $50, $60, they really are starting to look towards burgundy is that a trend that's really happening I th- across uh, regions worldwide
0: yeah I, I mean i think so uh, and maybe i like to think that because it's it's always been my my paradigm so I'm, i might be a little optimistic but certainly within the context of a lot of the producers that i know that's absolutely true and i mean in if you take argentina the great example is you know they got Jean rouleau now consulting on the chakra property which is by far the most expensive uh you know chardonnay in argentina so uh You know, one of the great, great, great Burgundy producers. So, uh, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, that, that effort to get terroir characteristics out of a wine, whether it's Pinot, even across others. I mean, don't forget, California 40 years ago, you know, just said bah to the concept of terroir. You know, I said, come on, it's, you know, the French just say that because they don't have the climate that we do. And, you know, grapes are made by the climate. They're not made by the terroir. And I mean, there was a lot of, there were a lot of scientists that walked through the halls of, you know, Fresno and, and Davis and others that gave us lots of proof on how, in fact, None of the chemicals and, and minerals that are in the soil, in fact, get tr- transmitted directly into the juice of wine, it, which isn't, of course, to say that they don't have an impact on what the flavor of that juice is there. I don't necessarily expect to find quartz, you know, crystals in my in my wine. You know, it's it's, it's the question of what impact do those things have, and I think more and more now, and especially with Pedro Parra's work over the past, you know, decade. Uh, we're seeing direct attributes where there are a number of tasters who can sit down and say, this was done on a nice base, this was done on a base of limestone, this was done on a base of volcanic soils, this was done... I mean, that's getting more and more obvious and, 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 and more possible. So I think that, that fact alone, like what it's grown in in terms of... of Of mineral structure is a good indication of what all of the other elements can possibly do, and some of those are soils, some of those are exposures, some of them are percolations of you know an air drainage and a and a a whole complex series of things, and it's it's spectacular to be able to make a wine that reflects a, a terroir or an area more than it reflects uh, a grape variety, you know? And, and again, that gets back to, you know, the Burgundian thing I joked about earlier, where, you know, especially a DRC that, you know, we don't make, Pinot, you know, we make, we make burgundy, you know? And, and I think that that's, that's a big important part of it. So you can but, have so, surfboard, I'm, I'm, you can have surfboard I'm Chardonnay, I'm but with this, uh, <laughs> this DRC, do you have any you could bring? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like, let's,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's wrap this up now. Vittorio, thank yeah, yeah. you very much for, for hosting us here. Uh, on your lovely property it's it's one of those beautiful days here in Niagara uh, Peter uh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the podcast hopefully we can entice you back to talk about uh, about some of your history um, for a legacy podcast because um, I you, like you, you do that you've got you've got a lot uh, you've got a lot to talk about so we'd love to get you on on that Andre I wish you could say it was a pleasure but uh, it hasn't been yeah. um, hey, it's not often that you're you are as wrong as
2: you were, so you like really to
1: think I'm. It. You'd like to think I'm wrong, but uh, I know I'm not.
2: I don't know anyone else who's tasted the On Seven Wines. I know there's people who listen to this podcast who listen or who have tasted the On Seven Wines. Let us know. Send us an email to guys at gmail.com. I would just, you you or put, just put, it, put it on the Facebook page. What, okay, we'll put it on the page. Put it on the Facebook page, and uh, you can respond with Michael's wrong. Or Michael's right, and I will uh, I will accept the results. No, you won't. <laughs> no, I will. I will. The, the people have spoken. You know what? This is this is going to be a litmus test of whether or not I have the Chardonnay blinders on. Oh, you do. You want to you want to get us out of this? Um, we appreciate the support that we get for this podcast. It is not expensive to make a podcast, but there are expenses that we incur. So check out our Patreon, Patreon.com/twoguysTalkingWine. Even if, if you got two bucks or five bucks, it goes a long way to making sure we pay for our hosting, our equipment. Uh, as you can hear, the podcast sounds better when we have nice equipment. We could really use uh, another microphone, so Michael and I don't need to be close to each other. Yeah, God, this is this is hurting me. <laughs> I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPinkusWineReview.com. Find me on social media at uh, the great Guy. I'm Andre Pru of AndreWineReview.ca and at AndreWinerview on social media. Take us away, Michael. Any of you guys have anything you want to be found
0: on?
3: Uh, we've got an uh, Instagram at on7 and uh, check us out. And Peter just doesn't want to be found.
0: That's what, That would be yes. true.
2: Last plug: uh, do you still have any of your 2018s for sale or are you sold out?
3: um the 2018s uh have not been released yet they'll be released on august the 22nd so you
2: still take up pre-orders for them
3: but yeah exactly uh for those that are interested they have to send us an email to get on the allocation list uh and then the wines will be uh allocated accordingly and they'll be released on the 22nd of august
1: there we go excellent so i'd like to say good night but it's an absolutely beautiful day and it's the second uh i guess it'd be the second longest day of the year wouldn't it so uh good day Oh, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.